Welcome to Flywheel Radio, your arts and entertainment conversation with the people who make art. From musicians to painters to everyone in between, tune in to hear the creators talk about what inspires them, learn about the tools and techniques they use, and in some cases, gain a bit of insight on how they do it. So settle in, folks. Make yourself comfortable, because it's about to get all kinds of artsy up in here as I introduce you to your host, Mr. John Freeman. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Flywheel Radio. I'm here with my guest, Steve Tulipana. Steve Tulipana and me have known each other many years, and we're going to probably have more than one episode here because Steve does a lot in the Kansas City music scene, as well as he is co-owner in the very well-known record bar down in the Crossroads District. So, Steve, I kind of rushed everything and got in this little pod for the first time today. Mm -hmm. And I'm really excited about it because I actually get a this is a completely soundproof booth, so nice. no more no more broadcasting from my little independence room. We're going to actually have a soundproof booth. We're going to have, hopefully, a non-hiccup in the internet, which is also a problem with some of my past episodes. So I'm really excited. I'm really excited to have you here as a guest today, and I've got a whole new system, so everything should hopefully run flawlessly if it runs the way I want it to, right? Okay. <laughs> right? No problems, right? <laughs> So I got to see for the first time the other night, Dan Jones and the Squids at the mini bar. That was really cool. And you're a really great bass player. So uh, tell me about bass playing. How do you, how do you like being a bass player? I love it. You know, I, I actually, Dan um, Jones and I grew up together and the very first band I was in when I was like 16 years old was with him and I was the bass player. So I, I played with him and then I joined um, some other guys that I went to high school with. Ended up joining their band when their singer went off to military or college or something. I can't remember. Military college, maybe. <laughs> maybe it was a combination. <laughs> and uh, I joined their band as the singer. And then I kind of got, got more known as a singer. But when I, but weirdly enough, uh, when I went to college, I played bass in a band called Ooft with um, the drummer from Dan Jones and the Squids. Okay. And what's his name? Matt Ronan. Matt Ronan. Okay. That was the first time seeing him. Great drummer. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Um, and Dan, Dan was really cool. It was a totally different vibe than I've ever seen you perform in before. Now I've seen you play bass before. I saw you in Roman numerals a few times. Right, right. But that was, uh, you know, you and Sean would kind of trade off, if I remember correctly, and everything. Mm -hmm. It's been a minute since yeah. I saw that. And by the way, let's interject with that real quick. I talked to Sean Sherrill that same night when I was at the mini bar there, and. Uh, he, he mentioned that possibly maybe there could be another Roman numerals thing happening in the future. Uh, we do talk about it when we get together. You know, Billy lives in Kansas City again. He's busy a lot. He travels for work, so he's gone a lot. But uh, when we get together, we always say, yeah, we, let's do it. But we just haven't quite found the time yet. But uh, I okay. think it'll happen. Okay, cool. And that, is there a, that was a great band. Um, it, it You had what? Was there two records? We did one. um a physical release and then we did a digital ep because it was like okay. when things were changing and we'd been the internet was taking over i mean that was that was already you know we've we've done shows every couple of years since since but we really stopped being active in about 2011 or 12 so it's been wow. over 10 years now 
It's been a minute, hasn't it? Uh, and I remember mm-hmm. in that band, uh, Ryan, the drummer from, I remember him from, I think, a band called the Golden Republic. Yeah, we had that band actually, and it's, we were, we were really active for about five years. And we had, we started out with Pete Laporte, was the, the original drummer who played on the record. Okay. Um, and he was from Dirt Nap, played with Billy oh. Smith and Dirt Nap. Okay. And Olympic Size. And then he moved to San Francisco. And then we got, Ryan Shank, who was in the Golden Republic, and then Ryan Pope from the Get Up Kids was our last drummer. And okay, we did that's the Ryan Sean and I were talking about that I wasn't aware was in the band, and I didn't know a whole mm-hmm. lot about the Get Up Kids. So I knew I knew there was a second Ryan. So I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah, both. Uh, I can't remember if we've done it. I think Shank made it play to sat in on a song with us. But when we do shows, it usually is either Ryan Pope or Pete Laporte. Okay, and so Pete is still in Kansas City as well. Then no, he's in San Francisco, but he'll come in town. He's he's come in town, and we've you know it's been a minute actually since we played with Pete. But but uh, yeah, in my mind, you know, he is the Roman numerals guy. Like we kind of all coalesce the sound and the idea with with Pete. And well, I for one, and I'm sure the the listeners would definitely dig that. I would love to see a Roman numerals. Hopefully, I'm busy as crazy get out right now but hopefully if that happens um i would i would really hope to be there i would assume that would happen at record bar and that would be my first time i've not been to record bar yet because oh you haven't you know, been to the new one huh i oh, haven't right. been to the of course i've been to the other one you know because i played my very first old field victory show in your club but right. but i haven't been to the new one i tried coming to an outhouse reunion and the parking was just nuts that night it coincided with a, a first friday and I was just like, oh, my goodness, I, I we're never going to find parking here. We drove around for like <laughs> 20 minutes and we finally ended up at Chuckleheads. I mean, Knuckleheads. Yeah, that's what I mean. Um, <laughs> so so I haven't been able to uh, to go to uh, Record Bar yet, but um, I really want to go. And uh, if if the Roman numerals get back together and that can be my first show there. Great. I might yeah. even right. somehow if I can pull strings tonight, I might even come tonight because. This will broadcast later, but tonight there's a show uh, with some of the ladies from Frog Pond, I believe, and Don, mm-hmm. who I know from Bad Ideas, is supposed to. Okay, yeah, yeah there was there we go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the, he's showing me uh, a shirt right now that was a, a memorial to Brit um, from Bad Ideas. Um, so anyway, yeah, if uh, if the Roman numerals can get back together, wow, that would be super cool. But getting back to uh, Dan Jones and the Squids. That was a cool little three-piece. Tell us a little bit about that and how long that's been running, and do you have any recordings and whatnot? Yes. Uh, like I said, Dan and I grew up together. We had our first band in high school. Dan um, went off to college in Iowa, and then when he graduated, he moved out to Oregon for 20-plus years. Oh, wow. And he put about, I think he put four, five records out while he was out there. When he first started, it was more like, he didn't play for a while, and then he started doing like singer-songwriter stuff. He put a solo record out, acoustic uh, gu- guitar, and, and very, uh, I don't know, I, I guess Neil Youngish in a way, maybe. I don't know. Like, I don't know if that's quite right. But uh, he uh, had some success, and then he got a rock band, and he he, he put a bunch of records out. Um, one of his records was put out by Jerry Garcia from The Grateful Dead's Daughter. Really? She had a label for a minute, and she a little startup label, and she put one of his records out. Um, Interesting. Interesting to know. But then he um, decided he wanted to live closer to his parents were here. They were getting older and he wanted to get back to the, to Kansas city. And he moved back here and he's like, 
was like, oh, you're going to, I was getting him. He, he played at record bar, like did a solo acoustic once or twice. And he's like, I don't really want to do that. I want to have a band. And I'm like, well, I had recently kind of reunited with the drummer, Matt Ronan. And, and this other, we had, a, we, at one point we were a four piece and we had another guitar player. Okay. This guy, Alex Alexander, who I play with in Men of Men and the David Bowie tri- tribute uh, that I do. Uh, and he, uh, they were the guys that I was mentioning before we started recording that I met in Warrensburg and we had a band called Ooft where I played bass in college. And I was like, we had recently united, reunited. You got both the guys have kids and their kids were older or kind of you know, moved out of the house or whatever. And Alex really hadn't played in bands for a while. Matt always played in, in like blues, like blues and, and rock bands like out of, he played like knuckleheads and he played BBs alongside and, and stuff like that. That's kind of the world he was existing in. But we got together and we, for Thanksgiving, we learned a bunch of Husker Du songs and we did a Husker Du uh, project night. And we had a blast. Nice. And I'm like, hey, I got guys. Let's go, like, get, get the guys from, from my college days. And, and Dan's like, okay. And then, so we got together, started learning Dan's songs. We put out a record uh, in, uh, uh, it's called, um, it is called, We Live in a World. Oh, no, I can't think. We live, now I can't remember the title of the damn record. We live in a world. What is it? We live in a world. I, I, it's so embarrassing. I can't remember. Well, anyway, it doesn't matter at this point. But we put a record out uh, a few years back and we, you know, mostly just played around Kansas City and regionally. And then um, we, then COVID hit and we had a whole new record ready to kind of go. One record bar, when they kind of did the reopening a little bit, like you could, we had like 30 people. We sold 30 tickets and spread them all out in record bar. And we recorded a live record called Serve Without Delay. That the first one we released on the vinyl, the second, the Serve Without Delay is only available on our band camp. And then we just in the fall released a brand new record. We went down to a three piece and we have a sax player that plays from time to time. But, um, and you saw the three piece. Was the sax player there that night? No. Rich? I don't know. He wasn't. No, it was just you and Dan and, uh, and Matt. Okay, you were there on the, the the December show, I guess, right? I was there uh, with, with uh, the, the, the Blurry, Blurry Monsters, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was a fun night. Yeah. And we um, put that record out in September, and it's a cooker, man. It sounds really good. And uh, we're working right now. We got some new material already. that We're going to do a split seven-inch with the Utilitarians probably in the next six months or something. The Utilitarians. That Now, that's uh, Teresa from Pamper the Madman. That's her new project, correct? Yep. Okay. Okay. Yep. See, I'm kind of out of the loop here. I, I haven't played live hardly at all lately, and uh, and I'm kind of out of the loop here. So I got to kind of re- get reacquainted with some things. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so so your uh, so your live record with Dan Jones uh, was that done at the record bar? Then it was it's done at record bar. We streamed it and recorded it all, and then we went back into Paul Malinowski's studio, um, um, Massive Massive Sound, and yeah. we kind of and we 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 kind of edited it, cleaned it up, and made it releasable. But yeah, and. There's a couple songs that are on the live record that one's on the first record and a couple that are on the second record. And then there's some that we still haven't released yet other than that live record. But wow. So you got a lot going on with that project. And that's just that's just one side of Steve Tulipana. Like you've got, yeah. you've got yeah. so much. Dan's, I don't know. Dan's productive. Yeah. He writes a lot of songs. We we flew out a year and about a year and a half ago. We flew out to, he, to Oregon. He's got a lot of fans out there. And we did some dates out in Oregon. And cool. And hopefully we get to do that later this year. We've also. We found a fan in Mike Watt. You know who Mike Watt is? The bass player from... Well, I know him as... He was in Firehose originally. Yeah. Yeah. And Minutemen before that, which were a huge influence on us. And when we were kids, 
and Mike and Dan had played some shows in Oregon. And then we've opened for his projects twice now in Kansas City. And he, we've been on his, he's got a podcast um, called Watt, The Watt from Pedro Show. That's a phenomenal, really cool radio show where he plays music on it and from all over the world. And nice. he, we've been on there a couple times, couple times now. And he's invited us to come out to Pedro and play. So we're trying to figure out how we can, you know, between work and life balance, figure out how to get yeah. out to California, hopefully in the next, within the next year. Speaking of life balance, how do you do that? I mean, you are the most, I mean, I talked to some busy guys on here. Dave Tanner's out there. Dave Tanner's out there with the Liverpool Legends playing the world now, essentially. He's played anywhere from the UK to, to awesome yeah. cruise ships and this, that, and the other. Dave does a lot. You know, Todd Zimmer does a lot. He's got his mm-hmm. sauces and his amazing photography, and he's got this, that, and the other. But you, you do so much. How do you even time manage that? And you're married. <laughs> well, we don't have kids. That makes it a little easier. Yeah. You know, um, and I don't know, you just, there isn't a lot of, like, we, when we, we make, we make our leisure time when we make, you know, like we have to kind of schedule that and, and make a point like, okay, we're going on a trip because we have to take time off for ourselves, you know, like, um, right, right. You know, at, ho- at home, you know, I, I don't know. You just, I don't have, I, I guess I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about the stuff I'm going to do. I just kind of do it, you know? Do you have some kind of calendar that you're just like almost have to live oh. your life by because you're so busy with the business? And and even yeah, and, and I've even seen you and Cheryl take really nice vacations to all parts of the world. Like I didn't even know yeah, we the like, last the last we like one travel, you were in. Yeah. yeah, the last one you were in was what Barcelona or something. I didn't even know the yeah, area. Yeah. Like it was just beautiful. What was that? An arch or something? And I'm like, yeah. what is this? Yeah. I don't even know this. I don't even know this place at all. And I'm trying. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like joking around. Like, don't tell me. I want to try and guess. And I'm trying to look. Yeah, I saw you post seeing, like that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like seeing palm trees, and I'm like seeing this this beautiful arch and all this like really cool what was probably hand done uh, engravings and this that. And I'm like, don't tell me where are you? I have no idea, and I still couldn't get it. I still couldn't get it. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people. I I was like you. I didn't know that they had palm trees in the north of Spain. I thought that was all in the south, and we were in the north. You know, that's kind of northeast up there. And yeah, I, I was surprised when I saw palm trees there too. So I was surprised they had palm trees anyway, because when I think of Spain, I just think of Europe. I haven't been to Europe, unfortunately. I want to go so bad, but I think of palm trees as the tropics, and and I'm. You know, well acquainted. I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm well acquainted with the Philippines in a lot of ways because I've had a girlfriend for over two years from there. I've got a long distance relationship with a girl that's in Metro Manila in the Philippines. And when I think of, of palm trees, I think of either California or I think of the Philippines or I think of maybe Hawaii. But I hadn't, I had never had an association with Spain and the palm trees. And so I'm just like, where, mm-hmm. where is he? Where is he? And a lot of things came to mind when I saw that image and Spain never did. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, okay. So Dan Squid and uh, Dan Jones and the Squids that you've got, you've got the live record, which is available on Bandcamp, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. All and, three of them are available to stream uh, on Bandcamp. Yeah. <laughs> and do you still have vinyl for the one you released on vinyl? Yes. Okay. Uh, we did two on vinyl and we have vinyl available for those. Yeah. We have matter shows usually. So, okay. We cool. have, I don't, we don't, Dan and, and Matt are going to do, uh, they, sometimes they'll do a duo show that's kind of more acoustic and stripped down without me. Okay. Um, okay. They are doing that at Record Bar on uh, February 15th for the Love Hangover. 
I'm going to be out of town, but okay. There, uh, that's their next squids thing. And then I don't think we have, we don't really have a lot booked for a minute. We're kind of focusing on some writing and, and other, other projects. I've got a lot going on in my world right now. So I got season risk shows coming up and we're, we're recording season risk and I have shows with them coming up. I'm recording with volunteer right now. And then I play with men of men like every other month. So that's kind of that, that, that project requires a bit of mental focus. So really, I'm not familiar with that one. Um, but let's talk about Volunteer because that's completely new to me. So tell me about that project. Volunteer are a couple um, friends of mine, um, these brothers from Omaha. I've known for many years, Randy Cotton and Randy and Barry Cotton. They uh, Randy was in um, Ritual Device, and then he was in a band called Ravine. Do you remember Ravine maybe from the I 90s? I don't remember Ravine, but I do remember the name Ritual Device. Yeah, yeah. They were kind of like a, a you know post rock kind of noise rock band, and we okay. used to always do tons of shows with them. And anytime Season Risk went through town, or any of my bands, really, Randy was always there. He would help us get shows in Omaha. He's always been kind of a mover and shaker in the Omaha scene. And he, a few years ago, he has his new project with his brother. They're two bass players, two basses, and a drummer, and they have a shitload of effects pedals. And they create these big swooping, overlaying melodic. They have, you know, big chuggy riffs sometimes, like kind of noise rock, but then it gets kind of pretty and beautiful. And like, and, and the drummers got, um, uh, I, since I've been playing with them, I've, there's been two drummers. One was the guy from Original Device and the other, the drummer that's more permanent is named uh, Corey Thuman. But it's a weird project. They opened first season to risk um, when we were up in Omaha a couple of years ago. They're an instrumental band. And I'm like, oh, this is really beautiful stuff. It's cool. So I'm glad you like it. I'm glad you like, would you want to sing on some of our songs we're recording? Would you want to do some vocals on our record? And I was like, yeah, send me the songs you want me to sing on and I'll I'll take a stab at it. Send them down here and I'll just go to Dwayne's studio and we'll just do it that way. And then he uh, he goes, no, I want you to sing on the whole record. I'm like, oh, really? I don't don't know. I don't know. You know? And so he sent it to me and I kind of sketched out some ideas and I just really couldn't get anything locked in. And he's like, hey, can we, let's do a show. But I have no time to rehearse. I've never rehearsed with them. I have never once rehearsed with them. We went up a, uh, over my, uh, in December, we went up to Minneapolis. We've like played, I think I've probably played like 12 shows with them. <laughs> and uh, we've never rehearsed once. So it's, it, it, it was uh, con- improvised. I'd have like a sampler where I have like movie samples and sounds that I play. Got a little keyboard that I play. And I, and I just do vocals. And I got two vocal mics. It's really effective. It's very experimental. It's kind of, pretty out there and wow. um finally got three songs vocals locked in on them that they're they're going to release that um probably digitally on the on the volunteers band camp pretty soon like in the next couple of weeks i think okay and then, and then they're going to come down in may and we're going to go to Dwayne's Dwayne trower studio um weights and measures and we're going to record i don't know four or five other songs wow awesome so it's you know they do they 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 do shows without me instrumentally sometimes, yeah. but, but if I can be there, I'm there, you know. If anyone could do that and pull it off, it's got to be you because ah. there's one thing there's one thing that sticks in my mind about you and and there's a lot I've known you many many years. Uh, probably 92 would probably be the first year I met you and and uh and I've known you many years, but uh, a guy named Chris Sharp that we both know, uh he and I were mm-hmm. talking one time and I think Chris played for a brief time in season, is that is that correct? Correct. Yeah, and mm-hmm. uh, and then and then Chris played in a band called Hudson for a while with uh, with Pete Cook and and Danny. And mm-hmm. uh, I guess you had come over to a rehearsal or something of that nature. 
and they really wanted to have Steve Tulipano on the vocals for one of their songs. And they yep. said it took you like an hour or something like that to come up with this melody line. And then you were writing lyrics and then boom, I think it was recorded maybe the same night. And he said, you yeah. wouldn't believe how Steve can come up with a melody, just like it's just an amazing <laughs> melody and off the cuff. And so I, that's always stuck with me. I'm like, wow. Cause when I was in that band, Larry, uh, Shandon mm-hmm. was really good. He was really bad at writing lyrics. And we would write lyrics right before we went in the studio a lot of times. And me and Paul would be writing a lot of the lyrics because Shandon just wouldn't have them done yet still. I don't know what it was about lyrics. It was a hang up. But the guy could come up with melodies like that. They just, boom, they just dumped out of him. And so we would record every rehearsal and we'd have melodies for, for ages with our, with our, record, with our uh, rehearsals and stuff and have all that ready to go. And a lot of times the lyrics were just so last minute. It was crazy. We did a lot of Larry shows with no lyrics to songs. He would just be like, ah, you can't hear that well on the PA anyway. So, but I thought it was, I thought it was, I mean, that's, I would say that I do that. I did that, you know, with even, even with new songs with season to risk or other things where it's more melodic ideas and sound ideas. And the, the, the word, the verbiage isn't quite um, gelled yet. So it kind of, kind of mutates and whatever the sounds sounds like sometimes a phrase will pop in your head. And then that becomes the thing that, that you key off of as you write the rest of the lyrics, you know? So. Right. Um, so would you say you've done some of that? Have you actually gone oh, out and played live with no lyrics? Oh yes. And, and I mean, you know, I, that really surprises me with you because as I watch you, I don't know, I don't care if it's season or whatever band I've ever seen you in, but it was definitely season to risk at a VA VFW, if you will, I think it was that I saw you and I just watched you in awe. I was just like, if mm-hmm. I could ever be that comfortable on the stage and be a front man like that, I would like to front a band. Cause I'll be honest, I, I never wanted to front a band. I fronted a band because I wanted to have certain lyrics, certain melodies, blah, blah, blah. And, and my vocals were really the last thing I was like, okay, well, we need a singer. So I'll do that. But I've never been real comfortable. You, on the other hand, are one of the most born for the stage people. I don't know if you feel that <laughs> way, but you're one of the most born for the stage people I've ever seen in my life. And I'll never forget that VFW show. You were just on fire and you were just so energetic and so over the top, if you will. And, and, and Paul was your bass player at the time. And he was just the rhythm section was just pounding and awesome and tight. And you were just going nuts. And I was just like, that's, that's so amazing, man. I'm just witnessing a really cool piece of Kansas well, city music history right here. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I, I just <laughs> always, you know, it, I mean, that music was so intense. It got me, it amped me and that. And that, particularly at that age too, it just was a very, it was a complete abandon. You know, you just don't, you didn't give a shit. You just like, yeah, here I, I am. Mean, I'm going to, I'm going to explode all over the, 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 you know, if I exploded right now, it would be fine. You know, that was kind of what, <laughs> what we were trying to do. And, you know, I, I think I'm a little more, a little more uh, refined, and and uh, even even when I perform Caesarus these days, I I mean I've, I mean I've been doing it for 30 years now, so it's like it's like yeah, I've definitely you know I can't move like that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Even if you can't move that way, I'm, I'm sure you can still move better than half of the people out there that are trying to be frontman <laughs> in bands because I because I guarantee you there's there's probably only a few other people that I've seen that were that comfortable on stage. Even Mark Hennessy, who I just love watching that guy when 
especially when I in the in the days when I would watch him with Paul, he would come out and I was just like, oh, this guy owns yeah, the Mark's stage. Awesome. Such a good singer. I know you got to actually sing with those guys for a little while too, which just clicked into my brain. But um, I would watch Mark and I would just be up there, just like I was a super fan, you know. I just uh, like, trying. Uh, yeah. I knew him. I knew him a little bit. I know him a lot better now, but I knew him a little bit, and I'd be up there just trying to hold, you know, like hold out my hand and get a get a hand slap from the guy because yeah. I was just like. I would watch him and I was like, that energy is so intense and it's so incredible to watch a vocalist that can, and then when I would peel back the layers and actually listen to Pa, then I'm like, wow, man, the, yeah, the lyrics are so intense. Yeah. And yeah, he's a great guy. He's a, he's an amazing uh, lyricist. And and that's another thing about you that I, that I really love is when I would peel back the layers of season to risk, I'll be honest with you. The first time uh, this is, this is how season to risk, came to me um i'm playing in go-kart in 1993 and uh mike devine <laughs> he tells me just straight up he's like i don't like your bass tone <laughs> and he's like listen you're a pick player you need to go find season to risk and go see them and figure out how to get a sound that's even sort of like paul malinowski no shit like, I, I never knew I that like, wow okay 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 whatever you know i mean i'll, I'll admit it Back then, my bass tone sucked. I didn't really know what bass tone was. And then for the longest time, I was actually teased by the Larry guys. They called me knobs because I would actually try and sit there and dial in bass tone. It was really, for some reason, it became a quest for me to have this cool bass tone. And I still I still tell Malinowski, he's one of the, you know, he's the god of bass tone in Kansas City and everything. And But, uh, but, I, but I go into Groove Farm and I put on some headphones and I think Lisa was there and She's letting me listen to, it was either Lisa or John, I can't remember at the time, but they're letting me listen to Season to Risk, and I'm listening to it going, what? what? <laughs> what is, don't get offended here, but I'm like, what is no, this? This is, this is what I'm supposed to get the bass tone out of? And, <laughs> and I'm, like, I'm like, and the singer is, he's singing, but there's a lot of like, what is that? Like, I didn't know about and... the megaphone. I didn't know about the yeah. megaphone, okay? Uh, so I'm like, this, or the, no, it wasn't even a megaphone. It was like a CB or something, wasn't right. it? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it was so a, a, yeah, that tone. And, and like, you know, like, 1993, we've barely heard Nirvana, right? So right, right. To me, I was still like, uh, like, okay, so I'm listening. I'm going, what is, I've never heard anything that, that ventured into kind of a, a noisier sound, if you will. I was always like listening to, I don't know, maybe the, at the time, uh, Radiohead Creep was big, and um, uh, I was listening a lot to Sticks record, I think, if I remember right. And mm-hmm. so, and they used a megaphone and stuff, but they kind of used it different than than what you did. And I'm listening to it, and I'm like, well, "This is well, this is different." So I was like, "Okay, cool. Everybody's talking about this band, so I'm going to buy the record." So I buy the record, and I go home, and I start listening, and I'm just like, "Wow, this is like so different." Then the first thing that hit my ears, like I'm listening mm-hmm. to it and I fell right, right in love with mine. Eyes, and I was like, this is great. And then I started li- like listening to your lyrics and I'm like, wow, this guy can really, really write lyrics. And then I, I fell in love with this, this song called he, I remember, mm-hmm. I remember you opened up for all at Liberty hall and I'm like, Steve, can you guys play he? And you're like, I don't think we got it rehearsed. <laughs> yeah, I don't, we, I don't think we, pl- I don't think we've played that song since 1992 or something like that like it, <laughs> i don't remember it, what year we were up there and in lawrence at that liberty hall show but um but i i had loved that song and i was like can you play that and you're like uh david silver was uh, david silver is that correct yeah 
He was David Smith. It was David Smith. And then when he got married, he, him and his wife changed their last name. So. Okay. Um, so he was playing and everything. And I think I want to say he was newer to the project then. Maybe he wasn't. So you're talking about first time with all with, well, maybe it's not, maybe it's second time, but with toadies and all that show. Yep. Yep. I was yeah, at that yeah, show. Yeah, that was a yeah. long time ago. Yeah. We were still touring on that first record, I believe. Yeah. And, or maybe we yeah. just done this. Well, if David was with us. We had just no, released yeah, the you had, second record. You had released yeah. the second record with the Derek Hess's art on it at that point, and yeah, yeah. And Jack Frost had a video I remember and everything. But yeah, getting back to that show at Liberty Hall. Oh my God! Wow, that was a that was a really great show there because it was you guys, and then like you said, then it was the Toadies who were great, and then all I had never seen all before, and I really at that point I still hadn't heard a whole lot of their music. Uh, Paul from Larry. He and I lived together when I was up there in Lawrence at that time. And he had, uh, I think, a record called Pummel is what I want to say. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Is there an old yep. record called Pummel? Yep, that's what they were touring them. I think I remember something with a monster truck or something like that. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm yeah. crossing over something. No, you're right. Yeah. Um, it, was, okay. it was one of the few records they did that didn't have one of their drawings on it. It was They did Pummel and Breaking Things were back-to-back. -back, so. Are there drawings that you're referring to, kind of these uh, Kilroy kind of drawings yeah, I've yeah. seen? Yeah. That, okay, yeah. okay. See, I don't, I'll be honest, I don't really know uh, a lot about all. I know that um, uh, there's a guy named, what, Chad Price, is it, that was the singer? Chad was in the band when we were with him. Chad was from Kansas City, and he was... Uh, he was from Kansas was, City? I didn't know that. Yeah, and he was a fan of ours, and he's the one that introduced the, the all guys to, uh, to, well, we had met them, but not as a band. Like, Dwayne had booked their first show when Dave Smalley was their singer. Uh, Dave Smalley, their first from Dag Nasty was the original singer for all. And then they got a guy named, um, Scott Reynolds who went on and did the pavers. Um, and then they got okay. Chad, uh, and okay. Chad, was, Chad the, was actually a Kansas city native, huh? Yeah. He's from Northtown. Yeah. I didn't know that. Wow. I knew his name for some reason. And I know so many people that love that band that, um, you know, I kind of got little glimpses here and there of their sound, and I loved them that night when when you guys yeah, played. But to be honest with you, I probably hadn't heard their songs except whatever was on Pummel. And I was like, this is cool. I like this. It's really fast. It's really melodic. And I had heard that the guys were in The Descendants. But to be honest, when The Descendants would have been popular, I think, is when I was in my listening to hair metal. And that's why it was my Yeah, you're probably, probably a kid, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, probably, probably in my teens at that time. And I bet you I'm listening to Rat and cinderella and stuff <laughs> and the descendants aren't even on my radar because right, right, i couldn't yeah. i couldn't skate and uh, i didn't know much about the whole skater right. skater <laughs> right. music that a lot of that was associated with at the time yeah so let's pause here for a station id break and we'll be back with steve tulipana this is flywheel radio you're listening to Flywheel Radio, the podcast that rocks. And it sounds pretty good, too. Hi, I'm Stephen Orr, and I'm not just a fan of Flywheel Radio. I edit the podcast as well. I take everything that John records, throw a little music in there, take out all the stuff that sounds like crap, and then present to you, dear listener, a well-put-together and great-sounding episode. Do you have a podcast that needs an editor? Well, drop me a line, podcast or else at gmail.com. That's podcast or else at gmail.com welcome back we're here with steve tulipana and we've been discussing the different uh different projects that steve does he's very busy he uh, 
I mentioned earlier in the episode that Steve's co-owner in the record bar down in the Crossroads District of Kansas City. He's uh, He's been a part of a lot of projects. Um, he developed a full compilation record for, was that on Columbia, Steve, or was that on Red Decibel that you did the Misery? It was just Red Decibel. Columbia did not release that. Okay. So he developed a full record of, of bands at that time, which was what, 93 or was that 94? Obviously, four, yeah. Somewhere in that ballpark. Um, anywhere, anyone from my first band that I started playing out with, with Go Kart, was on there. I think Molly McGuire was on there. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a lot of bands on that record. There probably was like 18 or something like that. Something like that, yeah. Okay. Right. So Steve, Steve got a lot of people some well deserved notoriety putting that record together and so forth. And he's just done a lot. I'm very fascinated with Steve in, in many ways um, because he does so much. And he's got a lot of, he's very well networked. A lot of people know who Steve is. And he's been able to go tour the country. And, and maybe even, have you even gone into different parts of Europe and stuff with Season and so forth on tour? No, we only we went to Canada. We had three different opportunities to tour in Europe. And they all got nixed by either bad decisions or... or uh, or accidents. <sighs> so. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But um, we never did. And I, I really would love to do it. Uh, I still, to this day, it's kind of my dream is like, well, season risk will be finally done. If I, if we can ever co- tour like Japan and Europe and well, and, you and, know, and, and how does that even really happen? Like we know that the get up kids can go to Japan back in what, maybe 94 or something. It was well known that the get up kids still can go, go over there to Japan the and they can yeah. sell out. Right. They can sell. Uh-huh. How, they does do really that, well. how does that even happen? Where do you even start the networking <laughs> on something like that happening? Do you do you have any I guess? I mean, the the opportunities that we had to go over were were through the label or the booking agency that we were connected with at the time. And I think you really you have to have those connections. It's just you know, like Shiner's been to Japan and Life and Times. They go over, but some uh, there was a, a guy that. Uh, has a record label there, became a fan of theirs, somehow discovered them and reached out. You know, it's a lot of it's happenstance and chance and then taking taking the risk and, you know, also biting the bullet because sometimes you don't make any money, but you get going. And, yeah. and then for like, you know, the get up kids, they, I mean, they do really well. Like they you'd have to ask them the, the details or when they first went or how they went. But, uh, you know, they were young. They were still in like high school when they went yeah. <laughs> over there in Europe. I, I'm so. really not acquainted with those guys, but it would be a very interesting conversation to try and figure out how they did so well. But it'd be, it'd be especially cool as much as you like to travel. It'd be cool to see you guys go over and play Europe maybe. And, and if you can yeah. do Japan, wow, that would be, that would be super cool. But you've done a lot with touring here in the States and you've toured with all kinds of bands on, many different labels and i mean i remember i never even knew the name jello biafra and somehow in my mind back in the 90s that has something to do with there's a connection to season to risk in there somehow i don't know is that even accurate uh the only connections with jello would be he came to our show once when we were in san francisco and we hung out and chatted with him Maybe that my brain makes that connection because of a conversation we might have had or something. But we were touring with a band on his label called Grotus at the time. Okay. Okay. And they were kind of a really interesting, unique band. Um, I don't know whatever happened to any of those guys, but uh, that was a really fun tour. And then he came in to, well, I met him again um, on a, <laughs> this is really weird, on a cruise ship 
in the Bahamas. What? He was DJing. He was DJing a, a party. It was the strangest experience, though. It doesn't matter. But that's funny, man. That sounds like that sounds like a dream. I was on this cruise ship. I was on this cruise oh, yeah, ship it, in the Bahamas, so and all of a sudden, here's Jello Biafra, and he's and he's doing this DJ thing. Like that sounds like a dream. That doesn't even sound like it was reality. real. I swear. <laughs> but uh, it's funny because it's funny that I bring up Jello somehow. I don't know where that comes from. I don't know much about the man, but I read this like fake headline like two days ago and it says jello biafra has passed away and i'm like oh no like wow like a lot of my friends know this guy and and this is terrible and so i research it and of course it's not even true (laughs) so hopefully hopefully there's no merit in in it that even becoming a fake news headline yeah i hope not he's pretty young so getting anyway getting back to to you um i'd like to kind of just gloss over how did Season to Risk come to be on, you know, okay, in the early 90s, there was a grassroots thing, right? Like a lot of bands managed to get signed. I think a lot of labels went, let's just throw this here, throw this here, throw this here, throw this here, and see if we can make one of them stick. They didn't really want to mm-hmm. put a whole lot of A&R into these bands. You know, like Outhouse, beautiful band. They get signed to Mercury. Then the next thing you know, boom, they're going to drop them on the, second, on the second record. They got them out there with Kiss and stuff. and. And boom! But anyway, there was a lot going on. How did Season Risk come to be signed to Columbia Records? We got signed to Red Decibel out of Minneapolis, which is a small independent label that had a lot of kind of heavier bands on it. And they found our record was pretty random. We were trying to do a tour, and we had these demo tapes. And it, it, it's a story I've told before. It was so random. I gave this guy to try to book us a tour. He sent these tapes out. I gave him like thirty tapes. Get get us a thirty day tour. And, you know, promo packs and the whole thing. And he uh, didn't get us any shows, just whatever reason, couldn't connect. It didn't work. Six months later, I get a phone call from this guy, Brent Ashley at Red Decimal Minneapolis. Hey, I, I, uh, I got your demo tape. I'm from this label and I really like what I'm hearing. And I'd love, I'd love to meet you guys and I, and see if, you know, talk to you guys some more and maybe we got, we could work something out. And uh, I really like what you're doing. Tell me more about your band, whatever. And I'm like, well, hey. How did you get that? I didn't know because we didn't send it any, I think, to labels. We weren't ready for labels yet. We were just wanting to get out and get the material out on the road and do a punk rock van tour, you know? Yeah. And uh, I said, well, can you help us get some shows on the way up to Minnesota? And we'll we'll come play a show for you. And so between our, our resources, we played St. Louis, Chicago, Milwaukee, Madison, Minneapolis. And they loved us and signed us on the spot from how I, the way I remember it. And pretty quickly after that, and we were like, well, our drum and, and uh, Peter had started playing with us at that point. And um, he was a partner in a recording studio in Chicago. Like, well, let's go. We, well, our drummer's got a studio. Can we record there? What's the budget? Did the contracts. We went over there. And while we were working on the recording, he's like, uh, I have a developmental deal that I'm doing with Columbia Records. And they want to use Red Decibel as like a proving ground. And part of the deal is they want to release. Um, th- they're funding the label to a certain degree. And they, they're going to release at least two of my acts uh, a year. Wow. And they want to do they want to they want to put your record out. So it was a re- it was Columbia Red Decibel. And so they sent an A&R guy out to the, the studio and he was there a few days and hanging out and, you know, and we were just like, he's like, okay, cool. Just, just, you know, but then it took, you know, and then, you know, we had, we wanted Frank Cozy to do the artwork and that took some time and it just took a little while to get the, 
the record, you know, we were, but we're like, we need to get on the road. We need to be, this is why we're doing this. This is our, our life. So like, so we started touring well before the record came out and they, they, you know, delaying it a little bit and they were trying to figure out how they were going to market it. And they did, you know, Columbia did some marketing stuff that we weren't keen on, but, but, uh, that's really how it happened, you know? And, and, and then, you know, started making videos and getting cool tours and, you know, it's just like what it was. And then, you know, we did the second record and we spent like, we spent three, at least three or four months in New York, living in New York, doing that record. And really, and you had, then, you had to spend that much time. Yeah. Yeah. We wrote some stuff in the state. They, they were giving us the treatment. They were like, we want to develop you. But then we turned in this record that was completely even three times heavier than the first record. I thought they really wanted us to kind of do the first record, but a little better and be more of like a, think they were trying to groom us into more of a like a sound garden type of thing what is, and we just what is better though that's so subjective especially with a band like season to risk that is very very unique very unique well donnie einer was the president of columbia at the time called me and he said we drop i mean in so many words we dropped the ball on my eyes. we should have pushed it harder i i recently heard it on the, some radio show while i was driving home uh, when I was leaving the city, I was driving back to wherever he lives, upstate or whatever. And he was like, it was on a radio show and I heard it and I thought, man, this is a hit song. We dropped the ball on it. I want you guys to re-record it for the new record. And we want to make it a hit this time. And we said, no. Any <laughs> regret in that, in that in hindsight, Steve? Uh, you know, no regrets, but it's funny. You know, I mean, it, you never, never know what would have been. Well, you know, you know, Jack Frost. It, it's my opinion that Jack Frost, which you had a, a good video for and everything, it was getting mm -hmm. some time on MTV at the time. I remember specifically sitting in Lawrence and watching uh, Jack Frost on MTV, and I'm like, all right, cool, season's going to take off. Here we go. You're tuned in to Flywheel Radio, an arts and entertainment podcast. Welcome back. This is Flywheel Radio. We had a technical issue there, and we're back with Steve Tulipana. And we were exploring uh, the second record that was put out. That was also on Columbia Records, correct? Uh-huh. It was entitled uh, In a Perfect World. And if you're unfamiliar, or even if you are familiar, it had some amazing artwork by a guy named Derek Hess. Um, uh -huh. This also had a song called Jack Frost. And uh, before the technical issue, I was talking about how I was watching Steve and and seeing the boys on MTV, which was pretty cool. And I thought, this is great. They're going to push Jack Frost. And it's a great song. And I, I thought I thought that was your mind eyes for that record. You know, and I thought that was going to that was going to carry you through. But if they were concerned with mine eyes, why didn't they just push Jack Frost the same way? Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, Columbia went through like that year was weird for them. And they had, you know, this may or may not be true. It's just my perspective, you know? Yeah, yeah. They dumped a zillion dollars into Michael Jackson that year. Oh, like it was a massive, and it was a flop for him. I remember it was the most expensive video ever made came out that year, and then the next year they dropped something like fifty percent of the artists on the label. Really, and uh, that, and, and to my memory, and I, I just assume it. You know, they were just going. None of these little bands. I mean, we were baby bands. But they all added up, you know, and they're like, they're not, they're not making us the thing. So we need to cut our costs and try to recoup what we're spending, you know, what we spent on this thing that didn't do what we thought it was going to do. And, and focus on, focus on it because that's their legacy artist and whatever. So 
I blame Michael Jackson, but <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, he's gone. We can use him as a scapegoat anyway, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm just kidding. yeah. I, it's probably not the whole story, but I would assume you know it makes sense. You know, that like, is a that is a big deal. You know, I mean, Michael's definitely uh, he's such a icon. You know, I mean, one of the biggest ever in in pop music, especially that, that it would make sense that if they dumped a lot of budget and things flopped, then you know things things happen. There's trickle down economics in that yeah. regard. Where they're not going to dump Michael Jackson. They're they're going right. to dump all these bands that sell ten thousand records. You know, right. So you guys, uh, you guys ended up uh, having what? There was the one. There was the one video, Jack Frost. Did you do other videos on that record? Yeah, we did that Blood Ugly video, which won a bunch of awards. It got played a ton on Much Music in Canada. It had it definitely got more love in Canada than in the U.S. Cool, but you know, it still was a pretty aggressive song, you know, and it was probably one of the heaviest things to come out on, you know, and heavy, not in like a Metallica way, you know, in a, in a, it was, you know, it was a unique record and uh, yeah, we're proud of it. You know? Yeah. I mean, you guys, you had a very unique sound. Dwayne's probably, I specifically remember a conversation with Dwayne at the bottleneck. Um, I don't know if you guys were playing or what, but I was talking to him and, and Dwayne's kind of soft-spoken. I hadn't talked to him too much, but I was like, you're a very different guitar player. Like you, I don't really hear you use a chord hardly ever. You use a lot, lot of single notes. And he said, you know, I don't know. We talked a little bit about how he kind of developed that style, but it's very different. You know, like I've still to this day never heard maybe, maybe a, a Tom Morello in his own little fashion has that super unique sound, even though Tom's a lot more effect sounds and this, that, and the other, but Dwayne has that, that very like, we're going to really push it out into uniqueness. Right. And uh, yeah, I mean, that was our goal always with everything we did, you know, was it wasn't to make a pop hit or make a hit record or a hit song. We were just it was we came from art school, you know, and we wanted to try to try to invent, you know, and be as creative as we could. You know, granted, you know, there's definitely some influences that, that we wear on our sleeves sometimes, especially early on. But it became consistently the idea was to to craft our own sound and our own new creative thing you know and, and yeah. still to this day we're like you know like now the kind of that kind of music is de rigueur you know everybody there's all kinds of heavy interesting bands that get played on whatever you know and we're still we're not you know we we've seen some of the things we've we did and create back then kind of appear in 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 and other artists and really more in the last 10 years than ever. And we're kind of like, Oh, wow. You know? Yeah. I don't know if we influence them or if it's just become more normal to, you know, to be, to push limits. And so we're still like, okay, well, how do we keep pushing without like we do this new thing or if we are doing it, if it, we ever get it done and it comes out, what are we going to do to differentiate ourselves from this style of noise rock or, or uh, uh, heavier, you know, music that's, that's, there's tons of bands, you know, doing it these days. And we're like, what are we going to do to, you know, and I think we've got some ideas that in our head that it'll be, it's going to be still d different and new. And some people may, may come out and people are like, that's not season risk, but we're, to us, it is because it's us, you know. It, it won't matter but, because it is season risk no matter what, right? And how do you yeah. guys, how do you guys write? How, what's your process there? It is, it is collaborative, 100%. That's why it takes us forever. You know, I mean, this will be only our our uh, fifth record in 30 years. <laughs> okay. 
you know. And so and so the lineup now for this new material would be you on vocals. It would be Dwayne on guitar. It would be David Silver on the drums. Is Billy Smith the bass player now? Is that? Yeah, Billy Billy and Wade Williamson are are okay. like the the main crew. Um, Wade, uh, it's funny on our albums. We always have pictures of people that didn't play on the album, but they're on the album because <laughs> they became the you know like. But uh, Wade Wade came in when we finished the shattering. I was playing a lot of guitar on those those last records and um, those last two independent records. And I just wasn't that good. And people people didn't like seeing me play guitar because they wanted to see me be more expressive and physical. And and when I did that, I couldn't play the guitar as well. So we went in and recorded the shattering. And uh, I think in the end, for time, I don't think any of my guitar parts. I mean, my parts are on there, but Dwayne ended up doing them because it was taking me forever to get them right. Right. And so I was like, can can you just play it? And then then we we're like we should just add another guitar player. And so we reached out to Wade and he started doing, and we, we had been playing with keyboards quite a bit um, through that record. And so we added uh, Wade to do keyboards and guitars. And, and he's okay. just, he's our secret weapon these days. When you see nice. us live, it's like, he's so good. So, so the idea, the new, the new record has, will be Billy and Wade uh, as, as writing partners, very much part of the record. You know, Billy was a writing partner on the last record on Shattering. He cool. and I came up with a lot of ideas from that together. Yeah. All right. Great. Yeah. Um, so I talked to you offline a little bit about how I really appreciate a lot of your lyrics and so forth. And we talked a bit about where you get some of that inspiration from novels and that sort of thing. Uh, where, where, where will you draw your inspiration when it comes to that as such a, a great lyricist and everything? Where, where will you get inspiration in this in this new material? Um. I pull a lot of stuff from films too. Um, dialogue from films. I like, I like, and I watched all kinds of films, foreign and, and U.S. and old, old court noir films. And like, I, I watched, I go, I jump all over the place. But, um, this last year I read, uh, I read, uh, started reading Cormac McCarthy, who I'd never read before. He wrote, you would know him from like The Road. Um, they, they made some movies. The, no Country for an Old Man was him. Okay, okay. And I really, I really liked the way he wrote. And then uh, writes. I read, and this is kind of weird, but I, the shipping news. I read that finally. Uh, it's it's an interesting. Annie Prol, I, I think is how you say her name. Uh, it's spelled with a P R O U L X, and that was a big bestseller book back in the '90s or something. But I finally, yeah, I, uh, my mom passed away this year, and. We were cleaning her house out, and I, I just, I, she had a bunch of books too. So she, she's a big influence and a big inspiration. And I think, you know, some of that life experience, you know, will be part of what what I'm processing and and and, and reflecting upon. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear about your mom. I don't think I knew about that, but uh, yeah, it'll be a year next week, actually. Wow, wow, yeah. well, like that. Wow, so it was completely unexpected. It was, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that that will be something that you, you draw your influence off of as far as, as, as lyrics and, and uh, so, so some of it's also movies, even, and then some novels and, 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 some, and just pure imagination. That's what I was just going <laughs> to say. And some, again, I, I said earlier in the, in the episode that there's something about you with off the cuff stuff, isn't there? Like you're just, I guess you're just so creative that. You, you're very good well, at, at just really just 
boom, like throwing something together and maybe just refining it. Works. It doesn't always work. It doesn't always work. I just think, I think I just, I guess in the end, I just not afraid of it, you know, afraid of putting stuff out there that doesn't work because that's part of life too. You know, like not everything's perfect. Not everything is, is going to sum up, you know, I, I mean, I guess that's really it. I just think like not everything's perfect. And, you know, as long as you're constantly learning from things and trying to make things better, you just you just kind of put it out there, and and yeah, you know, I got I suppose not everything needs to be put out there, but you know, sometimes you know, I sucks. think I, I was listening to Rick Rubin's book the other day because um, I mm-hmm. usually li- my books are usually come through in the form of audio books, and yeah. Uh, yeah. I was listening to Rubin the other day, and he he mentioned something about you know that that oh awesome awesome it's a great book isn't it. I just, yeah, it was there's a, so many, there's so many profound entries in there that I was literally found myself typing stuff up and putting it out on, on Facebook the other day. Cause I, if nothing else, I wanted to see it come back up in one of these memories. If Facebook still mm-hmm. exists for me in those memories, I wanted to see it yeah. come back up because I didn't have a way of actually transcripting the book already. So I was literally typing it out and I was like, this is so profound. Uh, yeah, I just, yeah. you know, and, 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 and Rick talks a lot about like, early, early stuff with the Beastie Boys and stuff like that when he was a DJ and how they just really, they took all these chances. And sometimes that's where you really go out on a limb and really come up with some of your coolest, most creative stuff is when you throw whatever you want to at it and you don't really worry about Mm -hmm. examining it too hard, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm just like flipping. I read this right after it came out. I got it and and I bought a couple copies and gave it to some friends too, but... I uh, just flipping through it. I'm like, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. He's kind of like, and I would say, uh, Brian Eno was always inspirational to me going back quite a ways. And Brian Eno, you know, kind of did similar things with his, you know, he had a, uh, like when I read this book, it makes me think of Eno. And uh, he had a, he, uh, what do they call that though? Oblique strategies. This, this, he created this set of cards for recording. Uh, and for creating ideas and they were like it always just kind of really random things that he kind of like in this book where you've got these at the at the at the uh, beginning of some chapters he's got a little kind of cohen you know like beware of the assumption that the way you work is the best way simply because it's the way you've done it before you know like yeah this kind of thought thoughtfulness you know or, or or mindfulness practices which you know i guess for him probably came out of zen buddhism or whatever but you know, kind of did something similar with these oblique strategies. And, you know, you, you would have these deck of 52 cards. Now I think he, they've expanded it to hundreds of cards. There's a website you can just go to, too, called Oblique Strategy, and you randomize it and you pull it out when you have a, when you don't know where to go with an idea or project. And it'll say something like, uh, I don't have, I don't, I don't have a set of the cards, but I go to that website pretty, you know, pretty regularly when I'm like trying to, when I have a block and it'll say, it'll say something like, do the exact opposite. Or it'll say, think of the color green or, you know, let's like, you know, sometimes they're really like just really far out and you're like, what does that even, what does that even mean? And then that <laughs> makes you, makes your mind kind of move in different ways and, and opened up those, those block channels, I guess. But, but I, I, I appreciate that kind of process, you know, and I think, I think that comes out of going to art school and studying that kind of right. modern art in the world. Like, how do we, how do we express these things that are, are, are that are, hidden inside of us and you know i i can i i respect so much the singer songwriter that can write a very 
simple story. Like Dan Jones is brilliant at writing these story songs yeah. where he creates characters and tone. And, and then that's really never been me. I mean, I've had a few things like that in some of the songs over the years, but I always have to veil them in some kind of, I don't know, just uh, uh, obfuscate things because I think it, I don't know, it's my pretentious artiness, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know if you'd call it pretentious necessarily because because you're definitely like, you're very artistic in so many ways. You know, I don't I don't know if that's pretentious. It is it is what it is. And I think, I think right. you know, going back to Rick Rubin, I think I see this in you and I see it in your band as a whole. Rick Rubin says the audience comes last, you know, and that's yeah. pretty profound, yeah. isn't it? Like we're like, I know I I'm very guilty of this. Like I'm like, I'm writing this new song and I'm like, oh, I think this might be it's not quite as hard rocking as as a lot of things that I do. And maybe this will hit maybe this will hit more listeners. This will be more interesting to people that like a more general sound and it's not quite as hard rocking. But, you know, I've noticed with you guys, it's like, OK, no bones. We're going to do what we're going to do. And if you like it, great. Jump on board. And if you don't, well, we got to do what we got to do. And you guys are that uh-huh. way, right? Just with the mine eyes thing. Like you could have gone, okay, let's do mine eyes because they're telling us they're going to, you know, they're going to do some A&R behind this song and maybe it'll lift us up. We'll get, get some cash in our pockets and we can tour more comfortably. Right. Maybe we'll be on a bus, blah, blah, blah. But you guys didn't think that way, did you? You went, okay, no, we're going to do what we're going to do. We want to be inventive. We're going to write a whole new collection of songs and that's, that's what we're going to do. And then we're going to, see if hopefully people like it in the end right yeah some people did some people didn't that's just how it goes you know but you no regrets i get that no regrets yeah and uh and that's that's one thing i love about ruben is i'll tell you what man if i could ever meet anybody famous i mean i've met i've met famous people don't get me wrong but if there's if there's anybody famous that i get to choose who i want to meet rick's definitely on the top of that list because he just for one thing, I just I feel peace when I even listen to his voice. I go, ah, yeah, this is nice. this is uh, this is where I want to be in life. Is I want to have that sense of peace that he exudes, or whatever the word is I'm looking for here, right? And but, yeah. but he says so many things that are just profound, and I'm just like, how great of a record would it be if I had this unlimited budget or whatever, and I could go in and Ruby could tell me, why don't you do it this way? Because this is the way I see it, you know, like, and he's done anything from the beginning of what Jay-Z to the Beastie Boys to the Chili Peppers to Resurrecting Cash, you know, it's just, I don't know, I don't mean to derail our episode that's about you with Rick Rubin, but it it kind of ties into what I see you doing too, artistically, right? Um, I mean, I guess, uh, yeah, just that's, when I read that book, I was like, this is cool. I mean, I really enjoyed it, but I was kind of like, oh, wow, yeah, this is what we've always been doing, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. so I was like, I, I was like, that's cool. You know? It, yeah. But, you know, it, it's, 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 it's good sometimes to remind yourself and, and, and to kind of, uh, you know, just uh, slow down and think about stuff sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and, you know, I'm always kind of like, go, go, do, do, do. And sometimes I need to take a step back and breathe and go, there's no hurry. Other than the fact that, you know, I'm 55 years old and, you know, people in my family don't tend to live long, apparently. Oh, no. But so there's that, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, making light of, 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 I take, you know, I have pretty um, healthy uh, disrespect for death. 
I just, yeah, it just, yeah. it is. It, 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 I mean, I'm not reckless. I don't mean I mean it that way. I just mean I think that you have to, you know, maybe it's a money. Growing up watching Monty Python as a kid, but you kind of have to take life with a grain of salt and and just enjoy and laugh at everything, you know. Right, right. So maybe it's a healthy respect for death. I don't know. <laughs> maybe it is. Maybe it is. <laughs> but with with the uh, season of risk stuff in mind, with as you you know, uh, I talked to Andrew Ashby. They recorded their new record in in Dwayne's uh, studio, and he was super Brilliant. happy. I love that record. That record's so good. It's so good. So good. And uh, so I'm sure you guys will have some some sweet sounds coming out of there because it's a fantastic studio. I can't wait to get over mm-hmm. there and and hopefully uh, have my little bit of maybe a song or so in there or something like that. But do you have any idea? Is there any kind of a, a goal on the on the whiteboard of, of when a new season to risk? Maybe. Uh, well, you know, just I, I just um, I had to. We've been doing a reissue project, so. We, uh, the shattering, you know, had never been on vinyl. It came oh. out during the era of CD. Same with, same with Men or Monkeys. And we did a project over COVID or right before COVID. I can't remember now. Did we finish that over COVID? I guess it was Men or Monkeys was during COVID. But I've independently, um, we have made uh, vinyl copies and those were independent records. The, the labels that we put them out on both said, do whatever you want. It's your art put it out, send us a copy, you know? So we released those. And then the idea was to keep going backwards in the catalog. The first two, those Sony Columbia records um, were on, they were produced on vinyl, but they're really hard to find. And they're, they go for like, the first one goes for a hundred dollars or something on, on the discogs and places like that. You can't, you just can't find it. And so I was wanting to reissue them, but we, I started, instead of doing it myself, I started talking to some labels about, some indie labels about possibly doing the manufacturing for us and doing the marketing because I I pretty much did, David and I pretty much did everything as far as marketing it, trying to sell it. You know, I was packing everything up, doing all the shipping, doing like, I mean, it's fine. It's just a lot of work. Uh, And it only has a certain small reach because the way we do it, you know, it's like our our, our limited fan base. And so... We've sold out those copies of those records, but I'm like, be nice to have these these Sony records sold a hell of a lot more albums. You know, I mean, when they came out, they were you know uh, thousands and thousands of copies more than the the later records. So we we're like, there's a bigger reach. Talk to this independent label in Seattle, and the guy's like, well, do you do you have the rights? And I'm like, I think so. I don't know. And then, <laughs> so we decided we better look into it. And of course, Sony. Sony had never released any of it, those two records digitally. The only availability on streaming was because the label in, in Chicago that put out the Men or Monkeys record got a handshake deal when streaming was starting from somebody at Sony. And he made his own, we made a CD that was both records at once with all our seven inches. And when we released that, but then he put it up on streaming. He wasn't supposed to do that apparently, and, but they didn't know and didn't care. They never put anything out on streaming until we reached out to find out if we could what we needed to do to put these, those records out on vinyl. All of a sudden, everything's getting shut down. Everything on the internet is that digitally that's out there, like videos, all these things are getting pulled. Like, um, because they launched their digital versions that have a, 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 you know, the the code and it, it, here's those songs. It says, this is an invalid copyright, invalid copyright. So I just signed off on licensing the first few records. I got to send them thousands of dollars 
tomorrow or Monday so that we have the rights for X amount of years to do the vinyl. We cannot do the digital. So now that we're spending this money, I got to go, you know, it's just a percentage. They want 20% in, in the forefront. And so then we're covered for three years. Now I'm going to go back to that label and say, hey, we're, we've paid for the, the licensing, so you don't have to hassle with it. Do you want to go through with the manufacturing? And then that'll be the next step is to try to, to I mean, we'll see. He may, he may decide it's too much of a hassle. But in, so in which case, then I will do it. If, if I'm understanding correctly, you, you're going to buy back into the rights of the first two records and then look at yes. more production on vinyl. Is that correct? Correct. If yeah. the labels want to pick that up and, and do the yeah, marketing re- for you, re- the, the time-consuming part and the right. initial investment yeah. to make vinyl. They're remastered. Um, Duane has remastered them. They sound great. We'll, we'll update the artwork and make it punchier. And, 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 but essentially, it'll be the same, the same records. They're not. They just, they're going to okay. be better produced. Like that first record, um, the Frank Kozik artwork on that first record, their screen prints that Frank made and 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 we lost Frank last year too. He he passed away. Oh but, wow! Um, there's screen prints that Frank made that were like these really bright neon colors, and and that's how the album was supposed to look. But they couldn't get Columbia didn't get it right, and it came out very muted and and just RGB instead of this these. So now the printing technology is there. We can we want to release it to look the way Frank Kozik had intended it to look. And so that that's okay. our goal and. And we're gonna up we're gonna update it a little bit on the backside and stuff. And, but um, that's the goal. If the if this there's two labels I've been talking to. With, I think if the one in Seattle doesn't decide it, this other one probably will do it. But I, I, well, what, this remains to be seen. So I probably shouldn't talk so much about it. Okay. But if it all falls apart, I have the licensing, and I will just do it myself, like I did the first the first couple, you know. And we'll just do okay. it that way and. And so that so that's the goal is to get those in production and then get the this fifth album done and then I want to make a box like a box set that they all flip case they all slide into so nice. you have like and then that's then I can maybe put that to rest <laughs> focus on some other things but I don't know you know it doesn't matter it's like we're also I there was another project I did with Josh Newton who was the bass player on Men Are Monkeys and he's in Shiner right. he's a trap right. he and I he and I put a record out about gosh i don't know how many years ago it was now um nine years ago eight years ago called zilevin machinen and um he just gave me some new material for that that uh, oh, cool. i'm gonna start working on too so it's kind of super um noisy and it, it, it's kind of like seasonless but it's got its own tone it's a little it doesn't have Dwayne's kind of stuff on it it's more right. it's a little more like josh type stuff like um but uh i don't know i got i got all kinds of Irons in the fire. So you always got a lot of irons in the fire. So let's uh again, you know, I'm not trying to focus specifically on season to risk, but um you do have some things coming up with them. I want to thank you for uh taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with us in Flywheel Radio. There's a lot of people that want to hear about what's going on with you and what's going on with uh the latest and greatest with season to risk and stuff. There are some shows that we talked about offline, and I don't know if we made those into the episode. So let's talk about that. Let, let me have you uh, talk about the shows that are upcoming and how fans can reconnect with Season to Risk as you move into the next phase here. With all the, all the artists we talked about, uh, we did not talk about Men of Men, but that's all right. It's a, a unique project. Jason Gerken from uh, Molly McGuire is the drummer. Okay. But it is a weird, it's a strange uh, project. 
with some jazz guys. We've got a uh, Rich Wheeler on saxophone and Jeff Harshbarger on bass, who are kind of known in the jazz world here in town. Yeah, I know and, Jeff. Um, oh, just a tiny bit, but yeah. And then uh, this guy Alex, who I mentioned earlier, uh, who had played on the first uh, Alex Alexander Z- Alexander Zander uh, Alex Alexander. Yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of hard to say, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He uh he's the guitar player and then this guy called Carol Dockwest who played in um Mongol Beach Party. Oh yeah. Uh he's a uh, kind of multi-instrumentalist based keyboard and horns and all kinds of stuff and it is a cover band but it is the weirdest cover band you've ever seen. Um we play at the ship like every other month. We'll play like 2-hour sets and we'll learn anything. We've played Yes, we've played Rush, we've played Dead really? Kennedys, we've, we've played um David Bowie, we've done for for the Valentine's Day in February, uh, we're we're doing some Peggy Lee songs and some like old soul tunes and doing cool. like uh yeah it's it, it it the way I create the playlists they're almost I'd say seventy to eighty percent of every time we play it's stuff we've never done before we spend a whole we spend a month learning this stuff we get together have two rehearsals and then and uh, we design it I call them fake soundtracks so like you know like a cool a cool soundtrack has you know, like a, like a Tarantino tra- soundtrack goes from this style of music to jazz to this. Right. And so we kind of, we kind of flow through it with a playlist and we do two hours, we do two sets and, you know, it can get really intense and noisy. We've done swans and, but uh, that has a show February 24th at the ship. And, you know, it's fun watching Gherkin, making Gherkin play things like, uh, you know, like folk songs and stuff sometimes it's, it's he's like, he's just back there trying so hard not to hit, you know, like, and then, <laughs> And then uh, March 2nd at the record bar, uh, Violenteer will be opening for Voivod and Prong. Cool. And then uh, March 11th, Season Risk will be at record bar opening for Sleepy Time Gorilla Museum. And one of my favorite bands from Japan, Sushi Mami Ray, these three women that just destroy. They're phenomenal. One of the best bass players I've ever seen in my life. They're they're really? on the hill as well. And they're a Japanese band, you said? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then in April... I have a volunteer show in Omaha, a Metamen show at the ship on the 6th, on the 5th and 6th. And then we do the Season of Risk tour April 16th through the 20th. And we go to Wichita, Tulsa, Oklahoma City, Dallas, and Kansas City. So it's, it's just a, a quick five five day thing. That five date thing, is that with another band in particular? Or is that just seasons playing with different different acts as you go? Two days with Train Dodge and three days with the Cherubs. Okay. And okay. Uh, that's actually, I, I, I need to correct. Sushi Mommy Ray is on the Cherub show April 20th uh, at Record Bar. They're not on that, that March 11th date. Okay. The Japanese band is on the 20th. And then uh, that's all I have on the books. I, I don't really have any squid shows coming up right now, but uh, I'm sure something will come to fruition. <laughs> all right. Cool. Well, Steve, thanks again for doing this interview. And and like I talked to you offline earlier about, I would like to do an episode with you in the future. You're a busy man, but if we can cut some time out again, I'd like to do uh, something that sort of explores season to risk as a timeline. And we sort of go from the very beginning where you're, where season to risk is, is coming out of Curious George and moving into to well and i guess it wasn't season it's not fair to say that but anyway the guys were in that band and they transitioned you're in nine lives and there's this merging of the two and then it becomes season and then we go and take off and we've got what 30 years or something that we can talk about in hopefully an hour and a half 
Yeah, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> 30 years, 80, 1989. It's more than that. Yeah. Wow. Now, 89 was when I graduated high school, so I know it's more than 30 years. So Yeah, it was the fall. The, I think it's 30 years since the first record came out. Last year was 30 years, so 31 now. Wow. Yeah, we were a band for, we started in the fall of 89. So, yeah, a long time. That is, that is, it's, that's really cool, man. You guys are a huge, <laughs> you're a huge part of the Kansas City rock community, you know, and you have done so much. That's supposed to be on silent, so I apologize. <laughs> uh, you know, you've done a lot, Steve, and, and I admire your, uh, your grit, your determination, and, and most of all, your artistic, uh, well being. You know, you're just such a, creative guy all the way around uh and i love your lyrics and uh, i look forward to anything uh, uh that not only season puts out but i need to get those dan jones records too and bite into them a little bit and see what see yeah. what i can see they're, in those in that music they're fun yeah thank you thanks for caring hopefully again we'll see something with the roman numerals in the future because that was that was also super cool yeah that's a fun band yeah we'll see well, thanks again, Steve. And again, yeah. let's, let's try and do something again in the future. And uh, good luck to all you do. And much luck with the record bar going forward. And uh, appreciate it, man. We'll see you around, John. Thank you. Good to see you. Take care. Yes. Bye. You've been listening to episode number seven of Flywheel Radio, an arts and entertainment podcast. Special thanks to our guest, Steve Pulapana. If you'd like to show your support for the show, you can donate through Venmo to at Flywheel Radio. Got feedback? Questions and comments can be sent to flywheelradiokc at gmail.com. This episode was edited and engineered by me, Stephen Orr. Copyright 2024.